Welcome to the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes, the podcast series that brings you The Clearing, where all good questions come to be asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors, a clearing, a tree, a storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, and a cake. So yes, who are you, what's your story, and what life lessons learned along your way would you like to share with us? So welcome to a GLT with me, CG, and we're recording. And silent, that will also help. Yes, now shut your face because I'm about to start. <laughs> so yes, welcome to the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes, the podcast series that brings you the clearing where all good questions come to be asked and all good stories come to be told. And uh, I've got a gorgeous, lovely lady who's a beautiful storyteller. She's Tamandra Harkness, presenter, writer and lapsed comedian. The comedian in me, when I saw that on your website, is lucky we're not a prolapsed comedian. That could be more me. But um, yes, and we've got history because Tamandra Harkness, we go way back, don't we? We do. Yeah, and I, I was actually I was going to mention that at some point, but but yeah, that's why it's such a delight to to be here with you in a kind of different context. And also, of course, you know, bonus of worldwide plague is I get to admire your lovely attic. Is it yes, attic? the bonus of oh, the plague studio, is my attic, your home studio. Well, thank you for salute. It is my it's my bedroom where I'm wedged against a Velux window. But bless you. But yes, the joys and virtues of the pandemic is that we we all get to see each other's attic rooms. So welcome to my attic and I'm going to show you my etchings. <laughs> I've managed to talk you into my attic. So the history we have is we were comedy improvisation performers through Instant Wit, which has been going for 25 odd years, embarrassingly or crucially. We go way back when, but we've got history before that even because you went to college, Bournemouth College with my wife, Janie. That's true, I'd forgotten that. And amazing. coming full circle, you're on Radio 4 a lot. And guess what? I've got a radio. It's uncanny. So we've just got connections that are just going to keep like I was giving. meant to be on this podcast. Now, my job, first of all, is to just blow a bit of smoke at you as to why I've decided to uh, welcome you to the clearing. And you are indeed very welcome. Is uh, you, You've done all sorts of wonderful bits of broadcasting. Steel Manning is your current BBC series. And I was really intrigued by that. And in fact, I was Googling today just to remind myself, I'd love you to tell me what the derivation of, or the listeners, what the derivation of Steel Manning is. So hold that thought. But you've done stand-up com um, comedy as well. Um, you, you did a wonderfully appealing show, Your Days Are Numbered, The Maths of Death. I remember improvising with you when you were talking about, about to take that show up to Edinburgh. So, so you're all over broadcasting and also you won your first ever laptop uh, in, in many stories we can explore when you, you won um, a, a columnist competition about goat borrowing, which we've all done, I have to say. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, that was that was how I kind of got into journalism, really. That's, and and uh, you have to pay like a library. Do you pay a lot if you, you're late returning the goat? Well, that was the, the story was, and this is why I won. It was the independent newspaper did a column writing competition and you won a laptop. And this was back when laptops were like, oh, wow, a computer yeah. that's smaller than a truck. Uh, <laughs> and um, and they gave you headlines because it was sponsored by Nescafe. So they gave you titles and they were all slogans to do in Nescafe. And this and the one that I chose was if you want something mild and mellow, just drink the milk. And it was a kind of half remembered story from my childhood when, when I lived in the country. And we went up and it's one of these things that I'm not even sure how well I remember it because it was quite muddled at the time and then it got more muddled later. But basically we went off down to the bottom of the valley and we borrowed this goat and we brought the goat on a string, basically back up the windy lane to you where we lived. You needed to find milk, did you? What was that what you were doing? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, this is the thing is, I actually still have no clue why we borrowed it, but I just remember that. That was me and my mum and my dad bringing this goat back up the lane. I don't know how much dealing you've had with goats, but if they don't want to do something, they can be quite stubborn. I mean, and like normal people, I've done scrumping, but I've not done, I've not borrowed a goat. 
Well, it was anyway, it didn't want to come up the lane. It was all quite palaver. Uh, I I think that at one point I fell over and it knelt on me. But then afterwards, my dad said, no, that was a different time. And that was a donkey. Oh, so so I may be muddling up. But anyway, I remember the whole thing was absolute palaver. And we and we got it back to the yard. And uh, and then <laughs> after all this, which was quite traumatic, because I was about seven, I think, or six. And um uh, and then it was like, okay, well, we leave it tied up and then we have to milk it. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Um, and then in the morning it was untied and it had gone back home. We if I understand your yeah, father, we never got to milk it. I think if I understand your father correctly, what I'm interpreting in this story is your father's going on a very long quest to teach you about the word menagerie. So each <laughs> holiday is a different animal that you add to your menagerie. So today we're borrowing a goat. Last year, as you remember, Tamanda, if you were listening, was a donkey. And so on. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think we borrowed the donkey. I think that, I think that was a. I think that was. A I like the fact you. I love the grace in the fact I'm only borrowing it. It's okay. We're not nicking. <laughs> we're just borrowing it. <laughs> no, no. It was. It, it was like we had neighbours who kept goats. Because my dad actually also told. I don't know if it's the same neighbours, but my dad later told this great story about. Because it was like it was near Stroud. Everyone was hippies, and everyone had goats and things. And, uh, and my dad saw what one of the neighbours that had goats across a supermarket uh, and at a, like a checkout a long way down. And so shouted across, oh, hi, hi, how are you doing? Hi, fine. Uh, hi, how are the kids? Oh, one of them died. Like, oh, no, it's put it in the freezer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> the baby goats, obviously. Obviously, uh, we hope. So he knew that, she knew that. The rest of the supermarket didn't know that. So it caused a bit of stir, apparently. Yes. Now, a, a, a lovely, long, rambling, menagerie fueled introduction. So, Tamanda Hartness, welcome to the Construct of the Good Listening To podcast, where, as I've mentioned, I'm bringing you to a place called The Clearing, which is a place I'm really enjoying curating, where we're going to first of all ask you in a moment what your clearing is, and then we've got some lovely storytelling metaphors to bounce along and jollify along the way. So, uh, Tamanda Hartness, presenter, writer, and lapsed, not prolapsed, comedian just to qualify um what is a clearing like for you where do you go in your wonderful joy of travel you know what's a clearing like for you I to clear my mind um I actually I do find travel in general helps me clear my mind because I think it gets me away from the distractions the everyday worries obviously currently that's that's kind of tricky uh but on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm very lucky. I live quite near the river in southeast London and quite a long way east. So it's becoming quite a large estuary and it's very tidal. So I think it's probably the nearest thing you can get to living by the sea while living in London. Uh, okay. so I, I like to go down and, uh, and walk along by the river, which is very close to my house. And you kind of look out across. There's some combination of water and mud, depending on what the tide is doing at that point. Uh, and there's a this is a very scenic Tate and Lyle factory across the river at one point. Well, that's uh, golden syrup, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah, it's Lyle's golden syrup. And uh, and so I can gaze across at that, which is surprisingly aesthetically pleasing for an old sugar factory, and uh, and watch the seagulls. But you too are very aesthetically pleasing for an old sugar factory. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nicest thing anyone said to me all day, Chris. You're very welcome. <laughs> but bizarrely enough, I picked up a, a tin of, and we're not sponsored by Tate and Lyle at all, but I picked up a tin of that very same stuff because I was trying to, I just was salad, I needed a ginger cake. Oh. I was trying to make one. Now I, need I haven't to... done it yet, but I've got the Tate and Lyle in the bank. Oh, I see. If we were doing this in person, you could have made ginger cake and we could have some. Yes. So sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, so you're at this beautiful estuary. Anyway, yeah, no. So I basically, so I like to walk along the river and look at the water and the sky, because I think that's one of the things you get by living near water is you get a bonus sky because yes. they can't put any buildings closer to you than the other side of the river. And by the way, knowing you as I do, um, bizarrely, whenever I see a micro light in the sky, I think of you. Because you you do do that, don't you? I did. I haven't for years. I I became a bit upset. I I tried flying a microlight back when I used to do a lot of travel journalism, and went off and it was like a week's holiday. Start learning to fly a microlight, and I was thinking, well, I don't know. This looks kind of because it's basically like a hang glider with a sidecar, <laughs> uh, 
underneath and a great big uh and a great big engine with a propeller on the back that's basically what it is Um, well you can get slightly more sophisticated things which are just like very very tiny airplanes but uh, i ended up in the microlight one and i just i I tried it once and was completely hooked because it's like it's like you get on a scooter and you ride a scooter and then the next thing you know you're a thousand feet in the air it's because you're a motorcyclist as well obviously Yes, yeah, and I think perhaps that was part of the appeal. Oddly enough, actually, the guy that started teaching me was also into motorbikes, I think. Uh, and in fact, there's a lovely segue. Crossover. Yeah. Another segue there, and I'm not going to talk about a segue. I've no idea. I've never been on a segue. I don't know if you have, and that's not where I'm going. But but the sort of sidecar, um, iconic type of helmet, stereotypically one would could wear, you can just make that perfect for a microlight as well, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah, totally. I mean, you need a bit more... Um, there's no point really in wearing kind of leathers and boots particularly because if you if you fall a thousand feet then that's not going to do much for you but but it does get very cold up there so it's yes. it's kind of similar it's it's more about warmth than abrasion but yeah very similar gear yeah but it's just very interesting how you're the only person i know who's been in one so every time i see one i think of you and that's Aww. happened over the years that i obviously have known of you quite a few times so it's just quite nice to have a just something in the sky we go oh I mean, lucky you've not done an Icarus and sort of crashed in the background or anything. No, no. no I did recommend it. I mean, the reason I stopped was that I never seemed to have the time and the money and the weather all at once. Okay. Now, either, either I had the time, but because I wasn't working, I didn't have any money, or I had the money, but that's because I was working all the time, or I had both the time and the money and the weather was against me because they're very, you can imagine, they're very weather dependent. But I, I do recommend if anyone's kind of going, oh, I wonder if I should try that, you should. Well done for trailblazing. So, um, yes, yeah, so we're in in your clearing now, and and I've sidetracked you with the sky all. The oh river. yeah, okay. so, so we're I walking on by the near, river. So I think we're down by the river, and I'm going to arrive with a tree now in your clearing, and I'm oh. going to shake your tree, and this is where your storytelling apples fall out in the construct of the five, four, three, two, one exercise, where you've had five minutes to Mandra Harkness, uh, not prolapsed, lapsed comedian. <laughs> You're not lapsed at all, by the way, because everything you do has great humour coursing through it, obviously. Um, so yes, it's five things, sorry, five minutes to have thought about, four things that have shaped you, three things that inspire you. Two things that never fail to grab your attention, hoop squirrels, and then one quirky or unusual fact about you we couldn't also know until you tell us. So over to you to interpret the tree shaking, please. Okay, well, I did literally spend five minutes preparing this and uh, and have written some notes, a small piece of paper. Uh, so, okay, four things that shaped me. Well, I'm going to start with my parents, actually. I was thinking about, uh, and I think the most revealing thing about my parents making me who I am is that my primary school teacher apparently asked them one parent's evening when you ask Tamanda to do something do you always tell her why you want her to do it and they went well we do try to yes we think that's very important and she said yeah I thought so because she won't do anything unless I tell her why (laughs) which makes complete sense Tamanda which is why your dad borrowed the donkey that day (laughs) (laughs) I yes it's all it's all forming a picture now Mm -hmm. and on the one hand I look back and I think yeah that must have been really annoying for all my teachers and practically every other adult in my life because I do slightly remember being that kid it was always like why and it I wasn't doing it just to be awkward it was that I genuinely I wanted to know why I'd like to know the reasons for things my parents had always indulged that or even encouraged it but as an adult I think it's really comes in handy I think it's a very good instinct to have. Uh, I was going to say that that's so so so, <laughs> that so 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 informs your career now in documentary filmmaking because you're or documentary program making. Sorry, because you're just constantly out there asking the big whys, basically. Absolutely. I mean, I actually I have kind of slightly tongue in cheek. I've made it myself up some business cards that say the Bureau of Awkward Questions because I, I yeah. But exactly. So I think that very much has made me who I am. I mean, yeah, there's many other things they they have done for me and my dad still does for me. And But I think that encouraging me to ask questions and to ask why we're doing th- something mm-hmm. is, is very good. Um, and then the next thing, actually, so that you mentioned Bullmost College, I think the course I did there. So I studied film and drama with art and art history because it was a course that let you combine two subjects. And at the time, I think, I mean, I, I had chose it. And I think just the person that interviewed me kind of, 
actually theme is emerging here he explained to me why they structured the course the way they did because he asked me we had this very nice interview and he said and he looked down at my form and went well I think you'll probably get offered some other places so what do you think about our course and I said well I like some things about it but it's it starts, it, it, everything in the course seems to start in about the 19th century, uh, it's film and theatre, and I actually am really interested in earlier theatre, Greek theatre, Shakespeare and so on, uh, and so I think I'd miss that, and he said, well, the reason we do that is because we want to be able to look at film and theatre side by side and, and so on and so on. So he kind of explained why. So uh, so there you go. <laughs> I'd only thought of that just now, that that thing. Uh, by the way, did you say Steel Man Theatre then? you say that did I make did I hear that reading between no no that was you must have no uh, ancient Greek theatre and just I just suddenly thought there might be a golden nugget of the word still manning which is coursing through no no we we will come to that later though sorry I wasn't trying to get Uh, there but but no it's just it was even though it was a small college of higher education I mean the particular course the film and drama course as no doubt your your Janie has told you it was very well respected in the field and uh, you know, and if you said to people in film studies or whatever, oh yes, I went to Bullmarsh, they would go, oh. Uh, and the reason for that is that it was very thoughtfully structured and very rigorous. And I never appreciated that at the time because obviously mm. you go to college and you just assume this is what college is like and that people can't let you make arguments without justifying them and that you you take in a range not only of different periods and different plays and different films but also a range of different critical approaches to them and then you go okay well is this the best approach to take to this particular director or to this type of theatre if not why not so very questioning and rigorous the thing I particularly remember is that we were not allowed to use the word realism until the final year when we did an entire term studying realism. And if we tried to use it before that, if we tried to say, oh, this 19th century play is very realistic, they would say, don't use that word because you don't know what it means. Oh. Uh, Don't use it until we do the realism course. Wow. I know, exactly. So that's the kind of rigor that it had. And I just assumed that all higher education courses had that. And then afterwards, I talked to other people who went to sometimes quite prestigious universities and they went, oh, we did a bit of this and we did a bit of that and we did so and so. And I would ask them some question and they'd just look a bit blank. And I think, no, I was was really lucky there. Because again, it it kind of encouraged me in this habit of not taking things at face value. And And then in in the journey to becoming you, there's the the through line of your thread of your parents making you question why all the time and then why, why, even the interview, why. So the, the percolation, yeah. Tomato Harkness brought to you by the word Y, please. <laughs> exactly. Uh, not the chromosome Y, but the, uh, <laughs> but the word. Um, and then in perhaps a, perhaps this is the other aspect of me that I then, I basically got pretty sidetracked. I kind of had it in my idea that I was going to direct films that was that was my idea although I I didn't really on films and plays but I didn't really do very much about it I kind of slid around I ended up working in stage managing theatre and doing lighting and so on and then I got sidetracked into circus by working with a director who just kept banging on and on about how he'd done a flying trapeze course and how amazing it was until I went okay well I'll you know I'll try it sounds great and then I tried it and got hooked but I had no aptitude at all. I was the kid at that school who was so bad at PE that the student teachers would think I must be messing around because nobody could be that bad at PE. <laughs> and I, I still am to a great extent. If you throw a ball, I cannot catch it. It's, it's like I'm just, I have absolutely zero aptitude for sport in any guise. So me trying to do flying trapeze was just like the most ridiculous thing. And so what it taught me was, I really wanted to, because it's such, it's such a hit. It's such, it's so exciting because you are like flying. You you become weightless. You become, yeah, it's a wonderful feeling. And I just, I had to plug away and plug away at it. And all the people I was learning with were kind of going on and joining flying trapeze troops and touring the world. And I'm still 
not allowed off the safety belts kind of thing because I'm a danger to myself. Didn't they stuff you in the cannon and just fire you out of <laughs> That would have been better, probably. <laughs> but, but I really had to work at it to get anywhere at all. I had to work really hard. And I've got to be honest, I'm very lazy. And I'd gone through childhood only doing things that I could do quite easily. Like ask why. And this was the first thing I had come across that I really wanted to do, but I really had no aptitude for. And I had to work at it and work at it and be very humble and go, everybody else is better at this than me, but I still want to do it. And even though in the end, after several years of really, really trying to do trapeze, I just accepted that. Every time I tried to do it, and the more I, the more I was serious, the more I pointed my toes, the more everybody laughed. And I just went, you know what? You're never going to be any good at the trapeze thing. Just how, how many years of your life do you want to spend doing something you're never going to be any good at? Whereas everything you try to do seriously, people laugh at you. Just accept that comedy is where you're meant to be. So, so I walked away. But, but it was the first thing that taught me that sometimes you actually have to put the effort in and relying on your wits and the you know, native luck is not and I, I loved what you just said about the more you tried to point your toes metaphorically the more people <laughs> laughed and that that's probably the birth of the clowning isn't it because that's where <laughs> totally. comedy happens at the point when you your wheels leave the cliff a bit <laughs> absolutely yeah totally it was it was literally that it was literally yeah I really want to be the beautiful trapeze artist pointing my toes, doing very moving, meaningful things. And as you and remember, the more I do that, the more people laugh. Like, okay. And do you know what? I, that that makes complete and profound sense uh, in what I know about you, but also in in instant wit that we did do together. That's what's so brilliant about a particular format, where you 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 ask the audience for a really really somber, heavy social issue, and then you you interpret it and answer it using the gift of dance. That's right. And of course, yes. we're, we're delightfully crap because we don't dance. But the more seriously you take it, the funnier it is. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that, that is the origins, really, of where I got into comedy. So I did the I did clowning. I just basically went, OK, well, I'll, I'll still pursue the circus, but I'll just accept that clowning is is where I'm at. And then, uh, yeah, and then I came along to an audition to Instant Wit and, and met you. And I and <laughs> I still remember the song that I think got me into the group, which was I was given the, the, the challenge of doing a hymn about bowling. OK. Uh, and I still remember the chorus, which goes, put your faith in bowling, put your faith in bowls. Don't get involved in golf because it's nothing but a lot of holes. Ladies and gentlemen, to Mandra Harkness, when can you start? Marvellous. <laughs> <laughs> so 50 years time, and I can't even remember my own name, that song will still be lodged there. And actually, this segues beautifully, in fact, to the fourth thing that shaped me, which was, which and still is, continues to be, people who have taken a punt on me. Because my life is full of people who've looked at me and gone, well... We don't know really if you can do this, but we're going to take a chance on you. And you know, among the earliest ones were you guys in Instant Wit. <laughs> oh, yeah, in our genesis and our journey, remember it's more for us before Instant Wit. Oh God, um, yes, of course. And, and so I'm just going yes. there with with. No, you know, you're right. It was. It was more for us. More yeah. for us then Instant Wit. So we go back Instant even further. Wit. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. So exactly. So it was it was you guys going all right because it was literally we came along and played games, didn't we? And then yeah. Uh, and then you yes and yes and which of us yeah which of us you you wanted to play more games with really yeah 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 <laughs> what it boils down to and uh, and I was lucky enough to be one of those and and which just led to so many wonderful happy creative times you know with asking why connected and playing games asking why 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 and connected to the mindset of yes and is just a brilliant philosophy and life mantra really because you know yes and yes and you know even going into places where I'm not going to be good at this but yes and yes and yes and and presumably a lot of doors have opened within the broadcasting world you're in now because you, again you must have got in with an attitude of yes and and people uh, want yeah. to take a punt on it absolutely exactly I mean that's the thing I I completely am doing the radio which I'm doing which I also absolutely love I love the kind of it's a mixture of it's very immediate it's very low tech really 
you can just turn up to meet somebody with a like tiny recording kit you could put in your pockets if you had largish pockets and <laughs> and record the the conversation the sound yeah, is yeah. spontaneous so you know people tend to be quite relaxed and then you can you can edit it very carefully so you can craft something yes. that that has lots of layers so it's so I do love it and but that completely again came about first of all uh some people doing a new series called the human zoo took a punt on me and they were they were putting it together to try and be a bit experimental and different with the format it was about social psychology and they wanted someone to do the kind of roving reporter job but not in a straightforward radio journalist kind of a way mm -hmm. and the producer remembered me from doing comedy about science mm -hmm. and turned out the presenter who was also the kind of moving force behind the whole thing Michael Blastland remembered me from I'd been invited along to a big meeting at Radio 4 where they wanted ideas for getting more maths on the radio and I don't know why they'd invited me really because I was doing sciencey comedy at that point but I wasn't very far into the maths I think maybe I just started studying maths again I'm not sure and so but anyway they invited me along there was this huge table this huge room and they went around they asked people for their thoughts on maths and my sole memory of that meeting is that every time I opened my mouth and said nothing, everybody looked at me and then said nothing and moved on as if I was just talking absolute nonsense. So my memory of that meeting was that nobody, nobody really thought I said anything useful. Uh, and but, yet the exact opposite. But Michael Blastland had remembered me from that. So a couple of years later, and, and I hadn't done any radio journalism. Oh, ooh, I'd, I'd recorded some bits for the old travel programme they used to do, Excess Baggage, when they used to just literally lend you some recording kit and go, if you're going there anyway, record us some stuff. But I, brother, just, just, really... before, just before we move off that, there's something really rich and profound about how in life we experience gravitas and authority technically through the use of silence. And I love the fact that you used to be in these meetings and you just say something that was so thunderously wise is an interpretation where they just go, Okay. <laughs> that would be a very generous interpretation. I, I think they just thought I was mad. Although I have to say, one of the, the only thing I remember that I said was, and this really was like 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. And I said, well, the thing about, the thing about word things is that people can enjoy stuff together so you think of crosswords people get together and do a crossword and it's kind of sociable and a puzzle you know could we come up with some kind of equivalent for, for maths where people could get together sociably and do some kind of puzzle and they all just stared at me and moved on and about 18 months later sudokus were absolutely everywhere and i'm like you see you see but, but you always remember the things you were right in. about <laughs> Me back in i was here 18 months ago you see <laughs> exactly i know but of course you always remember the things you're right about you don't remember the millions of things you were completely wrong about so there you yeah. go but yeah so so people taking a punt on me and, I, and i'm incredibly grateful to them for taking a punt on me to do a job that i really had no idea how to do and yeah completely blundered in and learned on the job and then uh, and then they encouraged me, basically Michael introduced me to another producer who was making a programme about big data. And Michael said, oh, I know you're interested in this subject. Uh, why don't you get in touch with him and say you're available? And then nudged me and pushed me and said, have you emailed him yet? Have you emailed him yet? And so I met the, the next producer and, uh, and was a complete idiot. I mean, honestly, it's like I couldn't have done a worse interview if I'd been trying to not get the job. And nevertheless, he said he would take a punt on me. He literally said to me like, well, all right, let's give it a go. <laughs> and so gave I mean, me a, a, a radio documentary. Um, there's a lovely theme here. There, there's a quote of, uh, which I like of late, which is what's meant for you won't pass you by. Also, the idea that someone's there nudging you. Every now and again, you will meet people in our lives who nudge us and keep nudging because they can see something we maybe can't. Absolutely. I know. And I'm, I'm so grateful to all those people for taking a punt on me because yeah, I absolutely would not be doing what I'm doing without them. And 
you know, they put more effort in for me than I did at that point. And, and it's making me think about like the ABBA song of Take a Punt on Me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, I try and remember that. And I always try and, and the, I know there's some nice phrase for it, which you can probably remember, but, but I always try and do that for other people. I always try and go, look, I wouldn't be where I am if people hadn't taken a punt on me. So I should try and take a punt on other people. Absolutely. And so it, it feeds Reciprocity on is the is the most beautiful thing, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. I love, I love the, the whole notion of, of helping people by nudging them. Yes. Even giving somebody a damn good listening to is a really nice way to just be, you know, <laughs> hey, let's nudge each other along. And this is really lovely. So um, we might be at the end of four things that have shaped you, but, but sorry. Yes, no, I think we are. Yeah, that's it. That's four things to shape me. What's next? Three things that inspire you. And don't oh. worry some overlap, but it's all good. Okay, no, this is, this is very tricky because actually I, I kind of... I don't know, I couldn't decide whether like everything inspired me or so. So, all right, so I'm going to give you, uh, and I'm already changed my mind about them, but the, oh, let's start with, there's a philosopher called Hannah Arendt, who uh, she's, she's not the best known philosopher, but I think she's getting a bit better known. There's a lovely film about her, a biopic, which is just called Hannah Arendt. And it's quite talky, it doesn't appeal to everybody, but, to my mind, it makes abstract ideas quite dramatic and emotional. And indeed, it, it picks a very dramatic and emotional period in her life. So she she was Jewish. She was German. She had to flee Germany in the 1930s uh, and she moved to America and she went to Israel when Adolf Eichmann, the, the Nazi, was taken to Jerusalem to stand trial. And she went there to cover the trial for um, an American newspaper. I can't remember which one. And so the film focuses on that, which is a very, very difficult and dramatic period because, you know, there's the obvious drama and they, they use some archive footage from the trial. So, you know, it's a very highly charged emotional situation. But then she also, the way that she approached it, because as a philosopher, she was very unflinchingly honest. And that's one of the things I like about her, that she she doesn't kind of try and make the smooth things over and make things better. Mm. Um, and so she came back and covered the trial and she she coined this phrase, which people know her for, the banality of evil. Oh, yes, yes. And some people have kind of accused her of trying to normalise, to use a modern word, to normalise being a Nazi and and say that it's something ordinary. And... And she said, well, no, that's not what I meant at all. What I meant was, isn't it extraordinary that somebody like Eichmann, who was absolutely actively involved in sending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to their deaths, was just a bureaucrat and constantly stood in the dock saying, well, I just, you know, I literally, you know, I was following orders. I fulfilled my duty. What happened to those people after they left my jurisdiction is not my yeah. responsibility just completely absolving himself of any responsibility. And so her point really was that you don't have to be a consciously evil person to do yes. things that are evil, that it's enough sometimes to just be a bureaucrat and not really think about what it is that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. And so her point really was, you must always think about what you're doing. Do not- That also reminds me of that. Of it reminds me of the, the um, we mentioned Icarus earlier on, but the, you know, the. Um, the Mosé de Beaux-Arts, the poem where um, where there's the, the torturous horse, Benali, sort of scratching its ass on a tree <laughs> while Icarus is falling out of the sky. So there is there could be evil going on all around, but there is a banal banality yes. and a fickleness to the rest of the world just going on. Yes. So yeah. sorry, that was just a thought I yeah, had. Yeah, no, it's like she's... Uh, so she's very inspiring because I think she... She could have had an easier life. And the other thing is, just, just a little warning, if you watch the film, it will make you want to smoke. I've never smoked in my life, but within the first two minutes of the film, I was like, she just makes it look so enjoyable. I really want to smoke. Um, but, you know, she could have had a much easier life if she had avoided those dark, tricky areas. And yet yes. she didn't. She went for them head on. And she and she, she didn't follow any particular dogma or school. She didn't say, oh, well, you know, I, I follow this person. And she always had to think things out for herself. Yes. Um, and I, I really admire that. I find her, her books really inspiring. So there you go. Um, the, 
the next the next thing I think is Oakland privacy campaign <laughs> and the reason I'm going to cite them is uh, so I wrote this book uh, big data does size matter uh, answer it's what you do and with it. Due also to the nudging that you got from that producer who said you're about big data <laughs> so he must have had some well actually yeah I, I suppose I, yeah no it did help actually because I I was already interested in the topic but I think the fact that I had made the radio program then helped in advance yes yeah, exactly uh, and and a lot of it was about how so much data is being collected about all of us that in a sense we don't really have much privacy left because it's possible to know so much about us in so many ways just by collecting the data that we that we give out in the course of getting on with everyday lives and so there's a certain fatalism i think a lot of people go oh, well you know privacy is over what's the point Everybody yeah. knows everything and in the course of writing the book i went out to california interviewed various people about various aspects of course that's where a lot of it's happening but oakland which is this city across the bay from san francisco had this very active privacy campaign so it's like there they are in the heart of Silicon Valley and they're not rolling over and going, oh, well, everybody knows everything. They found out, the citizens of Oakland found out that their city council had been given a great wadge of federal funding to put in a new system which would link up uh, CCTV cameras and automatic number plate readers and even facial recognition and all sorts of things uh, and would be this this great system that would enable the council to watch the whole city and the whole port and everything that happened and so they rocked up to their city council meeting and went um have you done a like a privacy impact for uh for, what's your privacy policy on this and the council went oh uh, <laughs> Uh, and so these campaigners set up this this long campaign and they enlisted lots of help and they enlisted the citizens and they worked on their elected councillors and said, look, don't you think you should think about this? The stuff you're putting in, yes, it would be great for uh, if there's another earthquake and a tsunami, it'd be really good for that. Yes, it's great for finding people who are kidnapped. But, you know, if somebody goes on a demonstration in the town square and then goes to this other place and there's this other place, you know, you've now got the technology to link that together and basically spy on that individual. And don't you think that's a problem? And they ended up with the city council not only went, OK, well, we won't have all the things that were in the original plan because we do take your point. But also we're going to set up a privacy advisory commission. Which will be made up of you citizens and activists, or some of you. And whenever we want to introduce some new technology. You will draft the laws that will govern how we can use it, what data we can collect, who can access it, what we can use it for, all this kind of thing. And then, you know, obviously we as the elected council will have the final say, but basically you will actively be drafting the laws that limit its use. And then I even got to go uh, about this time last year, actually. So that was February uh, 2020. Well done. Yes, I know, a lifetime ago. Uh, I was in California and I, I went back and the, the guy that I interviewed, Brian Hoffer, who told me about it, is now the chair of the Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission. And he said, we've got a meeting. Why don't you come along? So I went and sat in and it was amazing. It was like, there they were. Um, the, the police came and reported back. The police said, well, we have done this. We used a drone to do that. Uh, we've got this going. And they were kind of like cross-examining them and going, well, we can see why you did this because you were trying to, you know, safeguard the officers and not, not get the officers killed. And that's a very good thing. But strictly, last time you hear, we drew up a code of how you could use this. And Your it drone can't go over my house. Yeah. yeah, it's like, <laughs> so we are going to, you know, we see why you did it, but we are going to have to refer you on because it's not really. And I just thought this is, this is fantastic. It's like, they're not saying don't use the technology. They're saying, we want democratic oversight of it. Wow. So, so I know, so like it sounds initially niche, but actually I think it's really inspiring because it's shown that you don't have to either go, oh, well, everybody knows everything, or go, well, we're going to ban it all. You can actually say, we want to get the benefits of the technology, but we don't want stuff to be done to us without us having any say in it. 
Wow. I mean, if, if they can only bottle that way of negotiating, they could take yeah. it to all sorts of global disputes and say, well, why don't you use the Oakland model? <laughs> well, they are. They, it's interesting, actually. They are asked to go to loads of other places in America and advise them on setting up their own policies and wow. their own advisory group. So, you know, I, yeah, I'd like to get a bit more of it over here. And what else inspires me? Oh, this is so difficult. So many things inspire me. I just like, you know, I read a poem or I see a picture or... Oof, um, Okay, I'm going to pick the the women of Poland at the moment because there's right. a move in Poland to take away the right to abortion pretty much under any circumstances. I mean, they've it was already quite tightly delimited how you could get an abortion, but it's pretty much been completely taken away. So, women in Poland, I should perhaps say, women in Poland are back in the situation that women in Northern Ireland were in until horrifyingly recently. Yes, which is that if they were pregnant and didn't want to be pregnant, they had to travel abroad. Good grief! Yes, to pregnancy, and it's rather shocking to think how recently women in Northern Ireland. So the ins the flag of of inspiration being OMG, this oppression is happening again in Poland. Yes, and yes. the women of Poland are absolutely fighting back. And, and yeah. when I say the women. There's also a lot of men. I mean, you know, I don't think you have to be a woman to think that nobody should be forced to carry a pregnancy to term that they don't want uh, you know, uh yeah that's <laughs> i think that's obviously it's something that affects women but it's... I, won't, I won't try and steal manual on that one <laughs> so but they but so they have not been taking it lying down there's been a lot of um demonstrations and yes at one point i think there was a strike i think the women said oh, we're going to go on strike see how you manage without us as a comedian, I'm very glad I didn't dwell on taking it lying down there. Thank you very much. <laughs> so <laughs> moving on. So moving on. So there you go. Um, yeah. So I, I do get I get inspired by lots of lighter things as well. But uh, but those those three were the first that came to mind because you only gave me five minutes. And now we've got uh, two things that never fail to grab your attention in the who squirrels way. <laughs> okay. Well, this is. To go into completely to the opposite end, then I'm going to say a nice motorbike because uh, I still have a motorbike, but I'm not riding it much at the moment because I wasn't riding it much in London and people get trying to steal it. So ah. it's living have in a you've friend. Got an iconic one then. Have you got a? It is a it's a Honda VFR 800. Of course it is. It's a silver one, Chris. <laughs> Lovely. Silver dream machine. David Essex, please. Thank you. <laughs> it is a, uh, so for, for non-biker people, it's what they call a sports tourer. So it's, it's potentially extremely fast. Uh, it's one where the, the speed limit is at the top of the dial and yet the... Well, I like that. It's potentially really fast because that there, it, somebody is, you know, it, big brained as yourself, you're potentially really fast. I get that. <laughs> you've got a processor in there. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you imagine the speedo, it has, it's quite, it's, how old is it? It's about 16, 17 years old, which is, you know, quite old for a bike. So it's still got the speedo that goes around the clock instead of okay. a digital speedo. You've got it um, parked up somewhere. No, no, don't tell us where. Yeah, no, it's living in a friend's garage in Hampshire and he gets to ride it occasionally. So it doesn't okay. completely go rusty. It's rather sad. Uh, but yeah, the, the, if you look at the speedo, right, if you imagine the, the 12 o'clock at the top, uh, that's about the speed limit. Ah. And then it, it goes, the needle will actually go around to about four or five o'clock. Like the cut of if you were somewhere that had no speed limits. <laughs> so that's when we fell for the leader of the pack as she goes. Yes, exactly. Um, but it's still, it, it's a very, uh, but it's also got a big fairing on the front to keep the weather off. So it, it is actually quite nice. I have in the past and I'm kind of waiting to like do this again, taking it on holiday in. Oh, so are we going France? to motorbikes generically of an iconic status or you mean specifically it's the Honda 800 blah, 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 that you're Well, the, no, the nice thing is I still, it, I will still often see a bike go past and go, there's a beautiful bike. Oh, it's the same one that I've got. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, but not just that. No, I am still. And I think even more so because I'm not really riding it much at the moment myself. Uh, I will see a bike go past and look at it. And my, you see my head follow it. Yes, that's, um, that's exactly what gets your attention. That's, that's yes, the idea. Exactly. And the other one is dogs. Because uh, I have to say, I am, I am so jealous of anyone that has a dog at the moment. And Everybody seems to have a dog now. All the, it's so many people, even the ones that didn't have a dog before. Have you got a dog, Chris? No, well, we, we're, we're sort of occasionally salivating for one, but occasionally not. Uh, and also, <laughs> the dog thing's funny. When I, when I first went to drama school, I was analogised 
uh, to being like an untrained Labrador in that I'll, I'll come in, lick your face, um, hump your leg, do shit in the corner and leave. I won't do any of those things, but I do love dogs. I'm definitely, um, I love the independence of cats, but I'm, I'm very drawn to dogs. The right dog. I'm now thinking of you, is it? But Labrador's not quite right. I mean, I can see that because they are very affectionate and they have very little personal boundaries. But it, <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> it, it, I don't know. Physically, you're a bit more of a maybe. Is there a Labrador Greyhound cross, something like that? A Great Dane. Ah, the Great Danes at drama school were brilliantly. Um, well, Rudy Shelley, the ancient European mm, acting teacher, will I will. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about ducky watch animals look at the great dame because it's always saying sorry i'm so fucking big sorry i'm really fucking big i'm so sorry i've just knocked it off oh sorry i'm really fucking clumsy i'm so sorry it's because they're just enormous they're like a horse in the house aren't they anyway. there you go i rest my case because i'm looking at you now going if you stand up now you're just going to hit your head on your sloping window I am. So thank you. So I've upgraded from an untrained Labrador to a slightly clumsy Great Dane. But <laughs> Vikings were Great Danes. And yeah, you know. I'm so I'm so I would love to have a dog, but it's like my life just makes that impossible because, it, you know, I, I mean, obviously at the moment, like everybody else, I'm not really going anywhere. So it would be perfect. But yeah. as soon as any kind of normality returns. Yes. Um, I'm I'm traveling or I'm and, just and out for 12 hours. You have a family dog. So you're sort of hearkening. Well, that. actually, yeah, no, my dad and stepmom have two dogs, so I can uh, I can always go and visit them. Are they theirs or have they borrowed them? No, they are theirs. No, but I see, actually, no, to continue the, the animal borrowing theme. <laughs> so not this Christmas just gone, which hardly counts, but the Christmas before, uh, I borrowed a dog because some of my friends were going away uh, on holiday, the whole family going on holiday for the whole of Christmas and New Year. And they had a lovely mad pointer. They still have a lovely mad pointer uh, called Ziggy. And, and I, it was actually, it was like before that, about a month before that, I was having dinner with a friend and going, oh, I wish I could have a dog, but it's impractical. And he went, well, you can borrow Ziggy if you like, because we're all going to Argentina. And, um, and I think the person that normally looked after had just broken a leg or something. So, so I borrowed this delightful, crazy, neurotic pointer for Christmas and New Year. And even that, even though I only had to go to work for about two days in that whole time, made me realise that my life would just be not fair on a dog. Because By the way, the question on everyone's lips, the question on everyone's lips, but my lips is, <laughs> did Ziggy play guitar? <laughs> <laughs> and... Don't no. relax. That's good. No, she was lovely, but she yes. was absolutely mad and quite. So are you? So so. Lots of attention. In the fullness of, you will get a dog then. I'm assuming. So there's a dog out there that you're coming to borrow. You're going for. Well, I would. I would love to have a dog, but I can. I just don't think. I couldn't live the life that I do and have a dog. I mean. I, I would have to completely change my life. And I'm Unless not... you've got a handbag dog, those little sort of Pekingese, snotball, whatever they're called, it's chihuahuas. Not, it's not really fair on them to suddenly disappear for a, a long I mean, obviously, life. I'm not saying that my life is going to immediately go back to being as carefree and jet-setting as I always dreamed it would be, but even just like going away overnight to... You did say that a microlite is like a motorbike with a sidecar, so I can see you in the sky with your dog doing the Wallace and Gromit thing. Oh, wouldn't that be great? That'd be lovely. And yeah. There's, an, there's a Caractacus pot sort of zaniness about that as well, about Tamanda Hartness chitty chitty bang banging up in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely see that. Yeah, no, I would love that. But um, no, I think I'm going to have to just like make do with, with saying hello to everybody else's dog for the time being. Lovely. And now finally, in the tree shaking, we're into a quirky or unusual fact about you we couldn't possibly know until you tell us. OK, well, you've given away a number of, uh, of things that are hardly secrets, like the motorbiking and the microlighting. Uh, but here's one thing I bet even you don't know about me, Chris, even all the years we've known each other. Uh, when I was very young, about four, I did ballet classes and I said that I wanted to be a ballerina. I didn't know that about you, Tamanda Harkness. And you would not guess it, having seen me express various social issues in the form of contemporary dance. You, you still never looked at me and thought, now there's somebody who studied ballet for 
possible. Well, in a parallel not- universe, Tamandra, there will be the Good Listening To podcast where Chris Grimes is talking to Tamandra Harkness, lapsed prima ballerina. <laughs> not, not prolapsed, but lapsed. I think I would have to be a very different person for that to be true. I mean, I refer you back to all the previous stuff about not being able to point my toes. Yes, I refer my client back to my previous <laughs> I would love, I can't even do organised dancing. I mean, I think the nearest I get to proper dancing is uh, Kaylee. I can do a Kaylee because we did country dancing at school. And so my feet somehow in spite of me got the hang of just being in roughly the right place at roughly the right time. But all the, you know, I've got friends that do the lovely rock and roll dancing. Oh, by the way, I love that. A life philosophy. A life philosophy of being roughly in the right place at roughly the right time. That that's really lovely as a way to sort of slide on through. Because you did mention I slipped, I slid into stage management, I slipped into lighting design. Just by being roughly in the right place at the right time is a really lovely thing with your big lovely boots. That's that is probably yeah. That is you used, I remember you used to wear. It was, um, is it Dr. Martin? I would think of you as sort of DM type shoes. So you'd be yes, yes. Yeah, no, I so I think they're I'm not I think they're not currently DMs. I think there's some other kind of w- more walking boot. But yes, absolutely. Definitely. Now we move um, away Let's from imaginary cake. Not yet. We've got to talk about alchemy and gold next. Oh. It's it's the storytelling metaphors that keep on giving. So alchemy and gold before the cake. You've just jumped ahead there. You just want your cake now, don't you? You want to eat yeah. it. Um, so the alchemy and gold is Tamanda Harkness in all your lovely illustrious uh, broadcasting stuff. You know, you must tell us about Steel Manny, by the way, because I know that's your current series. We'll talk about that at the very end. I'll give you an opportunity to make sure we talk about that. And I'm intrigued by it. Even the word was fascinating when I heard about the series. Lardy blah. But alchemy and gold is when you are at purpose and in flow. What is the alchemy and gold that Tamanda Hartness is here to bring to the world? Well, I think actually, and you, you kind of raised it before, really, it's about asking questions uh, and asking awkward questions sometimes. I think asking the questions that other people are not asking. And I mean, you know, there is a serious side to that, which is that some things need to be questioned and people go along with things because they think, oh, well, everybody else go along with this. That must be right. And sometimes somebody needs to say, yes, but why are we doing that? Like, <laughs> can you just you, but, but why? But there's also a, I think there's also a more human side of it, if you like. I've always had this thing that people talk to me, which is, which is possibly you know, one of the things that helps me in radio, I just have that kind of face that people will talk to and tell me things. And I'm not sure why it is. Maybe, maybe my face just says, I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> or or maybe it's because I ask questions that are a bit off script. But people really open up and tell me things to the extent that sometimes if I'm if I'm somewhere with my journalist hat on, I listen, I say to people, you shouldn't tell this kind of thing to a journalist you've only just met because I'm not going to do anything with it but you don't know that and you should yes. really be more careful but oh, I love that not- so there's real integrity just innately there which is obvious to people there's an honesty and a connection there but also um again it, it reminds me of the silence in the meetings where you said stuff that was a bit off script yes. and that's why if it's a bit off script it's stuff that nobody else is thinking about and I, I think I understand it now Yes. And, and improvisation I, it, informs that, your ability to naturally, naturally just swim away from the reef and improvise a bit while the water's a bit colder, going, oh, well, I'll just keep swimming. Yes. Yeah, I think so, actually. I think the clowning and the improvisation are great because they take away the fear of not knowing what to do. Mm. I think, you know, good, good, the clown teachers that I had and also the improvisation teach you that it's fine to be on stage and not know what to do next because something will come up or you will think of something and also I mean especially with the improvisation that you're there with other people and it's a team effort and you don't have to do it all yourself and I, I think and it's actually there prevalent in the best 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 theatres so in stuff like Chekhov when it's not about the script it's actually the yawning subtext that's so it's, interesting yes again it's, it's the, the gravitas and authority in the silences yes exactly I, did, I remember once I, I got on a bus. Literally, I got on a bus. There was it was empty. There was no one outside. Was, so I said to the bus driver, I was slightly joking. I said, "Oh, I'm late. Can you can you?" Uh... And there was another. That was right. There was another bus behind him with the same number. So I said, uh, "I said, oh, I'm late. Can you can you go straight through to wherever it was? Because uh, there's you know the other the bus behind you can pick up the passengers." And he went, you know, expecting him to just kind of nod and 
you know, take my bus fare and whatever. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, all right then. He said, I'll, I'll, if anyone tells me off, I'll, I'll say I'm, I'm stressed because of work because I've got some exams coming up. So, so now we're having a conversation. So obviously I stand by the cab as he drives on. I don't. Yeah. Uh, although I say it's a conversation, he really just then he just embarked on this story. He said, "Yeah, no, I am stressed because I've got this exams at work, but I'm also stressed because my marriage is breaking up." Wow. Um, because it's it's never really worked. He said it, it was an arranged marriage. He was some, um, I think he was a South Asian guy, um, mm -hmm. and he said, "No, it's arranged marriage. Um, you know, we don't really have anything in common. In fact, I'm gay. <laughs> in fact, I'm going out with a policeman who works at that police station as we drive past this police station." And, and it's literally this came from me just saying that one thing of like, you know, can you keep going and it just as a, as a little joke and and it, all this stuff just kept spilling. And even after other people's then then he said, oh, I have to start stopping now because this is really the start of the official route. So he stopped and some other people get on. But then he kept talking to me even then <laughs> thinking wow. it's, not, it's not even like an empty bus with just the two of us. And it's you, you just were just important. serving a profound purpose and function in his life as the conduit a bit like he'll probably think of you as being an angel who got him to just say it out loud and therefore commit to what his heart was telling him yeah yeah I mean actually so maybe he just needed a good listening to yes which is what you're about and also while you were speaking then I I, I have a a word that just surfaced for me which is Tamanda Harkness is the great inquisitor <laughs> that sounds a bit not Spanish inquisition but you just you, you're there with the quizzical why question but the great inquisitor <laughs> yeah but that makes it sound like i'm going to say to people uh so what do you think about this no i'm sorry it's theoretical i'm going to burn you uh, whereas i think i think the point is kind of the opposite <laughs> that i do actually go out and say well i want you to say what you think and even if i don't like it even if i don't agree it's really important that we have room for all the opinions because if we don't get them out into the open we're never going to resolve anything yeah Lovely. That actually, I mean, if, if you want to talk about steel manning, I suppose this is the moment to do it because... Well, okay, I was going to say we can... Th there's another bit of the clearing coming up, but <laughs> can. Well, it, it's just, it, it's very relevant to this because steel manning is a word I learned after I did a previous radio series called How to Disagree, A Beginner's Guide to Having Better Arguments. And that was all about how disagreement can be uncomfortable uh, but it's really important because it, it's really important that you have different opinions on things and that you test your point your views so that you know how can you know if you're right if you've never had to argue your case and, and mm. this kind of thing and all you know and for other social reasons it's very important that different people air their views so that whatever we decide as a society at least we've, we've aired them it's called and healthy I, conflict sometimes isn't it yes, yeah. yeah exactly uh yeah and in different contexts as well not all big political questions also mm. within relationships in life, or yeah. work and yeah exactly and after that series or i think while that series was going out uh i spent far too much time on twitter and people on twitter were saying oh you know that was really nice have you come across this technique steel manning or sometimes called strong manning and I said, no, I haven't. Uh, and they said, well, it's like the opposite to straw manning. You know, if you straw man somebody, then instead of arguing with what they're actually saying, you set up a straw man of arguments that they've never made, but that you can really easily beat. Uh, so I'm trying to think of an example, but I can't really. Um, Anyway, it, it's, it, I think people are quite familiar with the idea that you... What that makes me think of is it makes the other person, if they're being strawmanned, easy to burn. Exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah, that as well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or it's like the, you know, the three little pigs in the house of straw and you just blow yes. it away. Not much foundation to it. Yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's very annoying if you're arguing with somebody. Uh, OK, well, let's, let's to, to take a maybe quite a, quite a serious subject here. Uh, Which, by the way, the, I'll then interpret using the gift of dance when you that's finish. That's right. The, the, <laughs> yeah, the current pandemic, right? So there's a lot of very heated argument about what we should be doing about it. Uh, and it's a, it's a very serious topic because, you know, on the one hand, people are dying. And depending on what you decide to do, more people might die. But on the other hand, the policies that we take against it are in some cases themselves very, very destructive. So, you know, it's a really serious topic. So I was on... The Daily Politics, 
saying at that point, back in the autumn, saying that I didn't think we should rush into another lockdown because it's very destructive and looking at the data that we've been shown, I didn't feel it was justified. And then the person after me said, well, you know, there are people that just want to let it rip through the population. And, uh, and I, I looked as indignant as I was. So, uh, so they, they came back and let me justify myself. And I said, well, that's not what I said at all. I, I didn't remotely say we should let it rip through the population. You've just straw manned me by setting up a straw man, which is easy to, you know, <laughs> that's a very easy argue, thing to argue against because it's clearly stupid. Anyway, so that's straw manning. Um, steel manning is the opposite to that. Steel manning is where you go out and look for the strongest possible case against yourself. So whatever you believe, you think, okay, well, what's the strongest argument that anyone can make against what I think? So I can really test whether I can justify what I think. Uh, and this is this idea was introduced to me after the previous series. And so we said, well, that, that sounds great. Why don't we make a whole series about that? Uh, where I take five topics that I have quite firm opinions on, mm -hmm. we've thought about for a while, but then I go out and find somebody with uh, an opposing point of view who I think can make a really strong case against me. And, uh, and basically, I mean, in a way it's very self-indulgent because I'm basically using them to test my ideas. But I add steel and vigor to your own argument ultimately. Yes, exactly. So, so I, I, get, I get a steel man of an argument against mine and then by doing, you know, going, doing the jousting against them, if you like, then I will strengthen up my own argument no. or I won't, you know, or I'm, you know, I, I was quite prepared to find that what I learned was that I couldn't justify my arguments and maybe I was wrong. <laughs> so, it could be a Trojan steel horse in the end. <laughs> yes, steel donkey. Uh, so that's steel manning. So yeah. it, I think it's by the time this goes out, it will have finished, uh, but it will be on the BBC Sounds. Sounds. And by the way, coming full circle, one I did hear this week was about sugar tax. And that's ironic because on your walk in the river is the Tate and Lyle factory. Yes. yes. <laughs> That's right. Not sure for how long, maybe it'll close down. So that's what steel manning is. So in a sense, that is very much what I'm about is trying to uh, trying to get good arguments going. And, and by question good why, full, full yeah, circle. And question why, exactly. And say, okay, that's what you think. Can you justify it? But also to myself, that's what, if that's what I think, can I justify it? Um, it's also reminded me, it's a, a bit like an image of you with a great big question mark over your head, the why. <laughs> I don't mean why to Mandra, I mean, it's all clear, but, but also it reminds me of one of the most powerful drama uh, lessons whilst I was learning to be a drama teacher was it was quite psychodramatic and the group was shaped into the form of a question mark and then it all happened in silence for the next three hours. The starting point was you were put into a question mark as a sort of physicalization of that as a group of 18 of us. And then that's when the workshop commenced. So it became a, a very extraordinary series of very profound tableau that happened starting from the question and nobody said this is about why, but it was really profound because it was obviously yeah. violence of the question mark. Oh, wow. Go figure. Very profound. So um, now we're going to award you with a cake to Mandra Harkness for gracing us with your presence here in the clearing. Um, I was having a conversation with Janie, who you mentioned today. She said, well, I wouldn't like cake. So it doesn't have to be a cake. It can be, it can be a gift. But does cake work for you? Cake works for me. Cake works. I'll go with cake. So this is your opportunity to put a cherry on the cake. Mental Harkness, and this can take the form of. Are you happy to just go with it, or do you want me to yeah. give you def uh, descriptions? Uh, no, I'm happy to go with it. Uh, of course, you are. Sorry, I just mean, would you want me to qualify the different possibilities of where you could go that you know? Yeah, it. no, no, give me the different possibilities. So I'm thinking with the cake, it's up to you, open to interpretation, deliciously as you will do. It could be notes or advice to your younger self, it could be or include and also be the best piece of advice you've ever been given or a favorite inspirational quote, just anything that has pulled you towards your future. And then you can go existential too, inspired by all the world's a stage and all the men and women, merely players. And you can go to what your legacy should be, how you'd most like to be remembered, over to you. Well, as a, as a cherry on the top, I actually, I'm gonna go with a quote that, that does, it, I've got it pinned up above my desk, in fact because I think it's, it's a good, it's four words. And I think it's a great thing for anyone who's trying to create something or make something. It's, it, it, it's very good to keep them in mind. It's something that Lucian Freud came up with, the painter whose paintings I absolutely love. Because uh, they've got that kind of, 
rawness and honesty and unflinchingness. He used to do self-portraits, which is completely unflattering. And but indeed, all of his work was completely unflattering. But he, what he called the unflinching gaze, that you really look at something, you really try and see what's there. And he had this these four words: astonish, disturb, seduce, convince that every work of art should should try to do. And I just think that that's a, a wonderful thing to aim for. I mean, you you absolutely can't always pull it off. I and mean, if you're making a <laughs> yeah, if you make a 15 minute radio program about sugar tax, you're not necessarily going to hit those notes, but it's it's a great thing to aim for that. And it, within those four words, you've captured a little emotional journey that you want to take the viewer or the, the the listener or the reader or whatever with you on you, you want to astonish them so open their open their eyes open their mind to the world disturb them so really knock them off balance and knock them out of their assumptions so they're a bit off balance and and therefore if you knock somebody off balance you force them to move you know, if you if you come up and someone's standing quite steadily and you give them a little shove and knock them off balance, they're not going to fall over, but they will have to move their feet. So I think to disturb people like that is is good, and then seduce. So then, like draw out what is it they really want, bring them bring them somewhere, bring them with you, and then convince because you're not asking them to hang their brains up outside the door. You're asking them to bring their their reason with them as well. Uh, to speak to them as as equals, as rational human beings. Uh, so I, I literally have that pinned above my desk, astonish, disturb, seduce, convince. And in our comedy improvisational instinct of if you can't top it, stop it. I think that's such a beautiful place to end our time in the clearing. Using a tiny bit of silence to segue into, if we want to find out more about you on the internet, I know you've got tamandraharkness.com, but this is your moment in the sunshine to tell us about programmes we can listen to or where, where should we should go to find out more about you. Well, actually, if you go to tamandraharkness.com, I do try and keep it reasonably up to date and have links to the things that I'm doing. So there's a lot of radio series that are still on BBC Sounds, as they now call the iPlayer. Uh, so you can go back and listen to those. There's links to some things that I've written, uh, where my book is uh, and things like that. So it is actually, it's quite a good place to go to. But of course the the good and bad thing about having a ridiculous name like Timandra Harkness is, <laughs> it's, it's almost as if my parents foresaw the internet search engine years ahead of it existing. Know. Because yeah. if you can spell my name, which is exactly as it sounds, then you can, you can find me very easily. But please start with my website because at least I had some say in what goes on that. And by the way, I was there myself and there's a lovely, in the writing section, you're, you're rocking a sort of Joan Littlewood type hat. And I've no idea whether she was a smoker or not, but your desire to start smoking again when you're listening to your philosopher inspirer is, is that's the picture that you should think about when you have a metaphorical smoke. So, um, just put the, the, in the topic, if you can't top it, stop it. Say those beautiful four words again from Lucian Freud, and then I will stop after you've said them. Astonish, disturb, seduce, convince. You've been listening to Tamanda Harkness on the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes. Thank you very much indeed. Good night. You've been listening to the Good Listening To podcast with me, Chris Grimes. If you've enjoyed the programme, then please do subscribe on all the usual channels. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the programme too, and I'm hosted on Buzzsprout. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do. And then on Twitter and Instagram, at that Chris Grimes. Also, if you'd be interested in having some coaching from me to help you level up your confidence, your personal impact or your brand, then contact me via email, chris at secondcurve.uk. So until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>